Thanks for downloading this episode of On the Record Online with Eric Schwartzman, the podcast about how technology is changing the world of communications. To subscribe to the podcast or share feedback, visit us online at ontherecordpodcast.com, on Twitter at ontherecord, or send email to ontherecordpodcast at gmail.com. My guest today is Ryan Garcia. He is a social media attorney at Dell. Ryan, welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you for having me. Great title. Explain it to us. <laughs> well, um, social media lawyer is, uh, is a newer uh, profession, and I wouldn't say that even though I know a number of lawyers who uh, have that as part of their job, it's almost not, never exclusively our job. It's usually just kind of one main part of it. Um, that is something that I handle uh, at Dell. I support the global social media and communities team, um, but it's just one of my client groups. Uh, in terms of what I do for that group, it's a lot of consulting. It's a lot of looking at our policy, looking at our training content, and making sure that the teams that use social media uh, in their day-to-day responsibilities are aware of any new cases that have come out or any new issues that are popping up that they need to be careful about so that we don't get into any legal or public uh, problems around social media. So, Ryan, as you're doing your job, I imagine you're interfacing with all sorts of other attorneys. How much explaining do you have to do to bring the attorneys you're working with up to speed on the issues? Uh, That's a great question. I think it's it's a lot less now. Uh, We have all seen the explosion in social media over the last several years. When I first started supporting the social media and communities team at Dell, uh, there was not as much exposure to it. So even though social media was taking off in the mainstream, certainly not as much in the legal profession, where lawyers tend to be a little bit more conservative, a little slower to adopt new technologies. When I first started researching these issues and talking about them and writing about them, and eventually when I would speak to some groups about them, I would ask those groups of lawyers and judges and others, you know, how many of you are on social media or think you're on social media? And it started off with maybe 30% of the room uh, thought that they were on social media, and then it crept up to 50. And now when I speak in front of groups, no one raises their hands to think that they're not on social media. So there's certainly a lot more uh, knowledge of the, the technologies and the platforms, and that makes it much easier to talk about some of the legal issues uh, because now these people can see what's the overlap of some of the older rules that we have for some older technologies or ways of doing business and we can think about how best to apply it to new technologies. Uh, and then we can broach the more difficult discussion of, okay, now we have completely new ways of communicating what legal issues are popping up or what do we need to address and how to address them. So when you're talking to other attorneys um, on behalf of uh, the unit you support at Dell, social media and community, what are the biggest surprises or the big, what's the sort of the, uh, the common aha moment that you see attorneys have with social? Uh, to me, I think the biggest revelation that they have is that social media touches all aspects of law and all aspects of business. When social media really exploded into the mainstream, the first main area that uh, impacted legal concerns was in the marketing world. Uh, And that made a lot of sense, right? Because as soon as you have a technology that can very efficiently reach millions of people for not as much money as other forms of communication like print or commercials, 
then you're going to have marketers embrace that technology and start using it. Uh, marketing, though, is a highly regulated space. There are things that you can and can't do and things that you're required to do in the marketing space. And some of those rules, it was questionable about how to apply those uh, to the new technology of social media. So as soon as you talk to social media with other lawyers, a lot of them thought you were just talking about marketing. But gradually, as social media has taken over so many aspects of our lives and become present in almost everything that we do, people are now seeing how it impacts other areas of law as well. So now we're seeing more concern about um, how it impacts uh, employment issues, right? We've seen a number of uh, states pass laws in the past year or so about employers asking for social media uh, passwords or social media account information. Uh, That's something that we didn't have in the marketing world, right? It's It's a different concern. But we're starting to see how social media impacts so many other things, uh, evidence, uh, free speech rights, uh, privacy concerns, just a, a lot of different areas. And I think that's the big revelation that as people see that this is not just limited to uh, marketing, this is not just a new form of email, this really is a fundamental shift in how we communicate and how we do things and that can impact a lot of different uh, legal areas. Now, you support the Social Media and Community University Training Program at Dell, which is a program that allows all employees, whether they're in marketing or, or any area of Dell, to uh, get wise on how to use social media for business. And um, as you're saying, you know, you, in addition to teaching literacy, you have to teach them compliance, and uh, the legal landscape is always changing. How do you stay ahead of the legal issues with an enterprise-wide training program like that? Yeah, it's, it's tricky. Uh, you just have to, I think it helps to be interested in the field. Uh, that's certainly something that, that I was interested in, so that made it a little bit easier. But otherwise, you just have to stay informed and keep reading because you never know when one of these issues or cases will pop up that could impact you. So there's a lot, I mean, fortunately, there's a lot of great information resources we have for us. Um, anywhere from Mashable to plenty of uh, more legal-specific news sources that will um, either tweet out information or provide links. Uh, and, and so there's a lot of these stories that pop up, and it's more about thinking critically of what our business is, what our concerns may be, and then if something pops up that may be of interest to the team, then letting them know, uh, and, and really just kind of boiling down to what does that mean that you need to change or, or be concerned about in the future. But how do you structure a lesson, a training module, uh, in a way that future-proofs it? I mean, are there, are, there, are there tips to creating a learning module that is less likely to uh, ripen on the vine? Oh, that's a great question. I, I don't think that that's ever possible, right? Especially, I mean, let alone in a, uh, in a field that is not as rapidly changing as social media. But certainly in social media, things are just moving too quickly. I think that it's probably less important to focus on having a module that is future-proofed, and it's more important to come up with a way of delivering those lessons so that as a new issue comes up, you're able to effectively teach everyone or let the, the important people know uh, what they need to do that's different, right? So coming up with those ways of getting the information out there, working on your own style of training people, uh, making sure that your you know, training content is understood and it's remembered by people afterwards, uh, that, I think, is much more important than spending a lot of time on a module that, quite frankly, in a month could be completely out of date. So now you said 
one of the ways that you make sure that, that you stay away the, ahead of the legal issues is by reading up on sites like Mashable. But when you look at the content on a site like Mashable, there's so much disparity um, in terms of the integrity of the content. And often, you know, you'll see these links uh, on Twitter or on Facebook shared by, you know, Pete Cashmore or Mashable. Um, Pete Cashmore actually been on the show before. We'll have a link, link in the show notes. Um, and often these headlines are so sensational and so titillating, and you click through only to be let down and realize, oh, my gosh, they were just trying to get my eyeball so they could sell it to their advertiser, and, in fact, they can't deliver on the headline. You know, if that's all there is, I mean, why not just uh, – you, you know, can you use, can you depend on that type of information or do you, or do you actually have to go through everything and sort of, you know, with, with sort of a lawyer's scrutiny and decide what's accurate and what's not? I mean, are they just basically pointing to what might be interesting or are there other sources of information that, uh, you know, where, where the uh, signal to noise ratio is lower? Yeah, <laughs> no, great question. Again, I mean, first I think uh, I'm, you know, I'm shocked that you would uh, even suggest that there are some blogs that would only be interested in getting hits and would have sensational headlines that don't match with the content. That's just, that's appalling to me, right? I mean, we've all... I, know, I, read, I can hear Claude Rains in the background. Yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm shocked. That's not kind of how I felt about the whole NSA scandal. Oh, my <laughs> God. You mean they're actually storing our information and we've been sharing it? Who would have thought? Yeah, well, and, and that's a great topic. Let, let, let's definitely get to that one later, too. But I, I think in terms of, yes, that is a common problem in that stories that get the sensational headlines often go out, and many times the content of the story does not match um, the, you know, the sensational headline. Um, that's just something that I, I think lawyers are trained, and by trained I mean um, beaten and punished for three years of law school, to question everything that we read and to kind of dig a little bit deeper. And so I think that most lawyers who, you know, certainly have been practicing in this area know to read the headline and then immediately forget it and actually read the content and then read a few more articles just to make sure that it's matching up and you don't just get one viewpoint of things. Um, but then it's a question of figuring out if that's something relevant um, to your business, your business concerns, the way that your business conducts itself on social media and applying that information uh, to your business practices and how you train them. Uh, and that's just something that lawyers have to do with any kind of new law or new case or new issue that has come up. So it, it's something that we're trained to do as part of our occupation. Uh, and it's something that we certainly have to do with social media, uh, especially in a space like this that lends itself to, so easily to those sensational headlines. Uh, it's, it's a tricky job, and uh, but sometimes it's also a lot of fun, right? Because Sometimes people have read those sensational headlines, and then you get to come in and say, yeah, here's what actually happened, so you do or don't need to be concerned about it, but uh, it's fun to also show other people that may not have had such a discerning eye and just read the headline and thought that that's all they needed to know. So, Ryan, I was going through your LinkedIn bio before the interview. What's the fascination with instructional materials? <laughs> uh, it, it's more, you know, yeah, I, I did put that in there. On, uh, I grew up uh, reading instruction manuals, um, it, whether it was for a game or for you know, new technology that was coming out. Um, to me, I think the fascination is something that overlapped with why I went into the legal field, 
which is that rules can be um, restricting, certainly, and that it is what, uh, you know, these are the limits of what you're allowed to do. But they also can be very empowering in that this is what you are able to do with it. So to me, that's the fascination with instruction manuals is you know, not only learning how to use the technology, but also finding out things that may not have been as intuitive as they should have been, um, features that you should be able to use or functions that you can do. So that's always been kind of the, uh, the uh, appeal for me. Um, in this field, I find that is interesting as well because I, I am the guy. I'm not sure if there's others. There, there probably are a few. Um, but I'm the one that actually reads those terms of services before I click to accept. Um, and there have been some that I've refused to accept because of them. And maybe they were just sloppily written and they wouldn't do the things that they were saying they would, but I wasn't going to take that chance. Um, there was an article in the, uh, gosh, I think it was the New York Times a couple of weeks back, and uh, it was about the number of people that actually read the terms of service. And they said, if, if I can remember it right, they said something like, you know, the average terms of service is sixty to 75,000 words. And <laughs> most people don't spend even as much of a second on it. Yeah, yeah. and it, uh, to me, that's, it, some of it is understood, right? What I, I do like to see, though, is um, a number of, especially the social media platforms, there has been a growing movement to first make those terms much shorter to read, to make them much easier to read, but to also include little notes to the side to even try to translate them further down to one sentence or two. Um, I think Twitter has done a great job of that. Tumblr has done a great job of that. Um, I'm seeing more and more sites kind of uh, use that as a framework for designing their terms of service to get people to actually read them and understand them. I, I don't know how effective they will be, but it's a nice thing to see that they're at least trying to make it more understandable and not default into the, you know, 50-plus pages of legalese and semicolons. So I'm going to read you um, item number one from the rights section of the Instagram Terms of Service. It says, Instagram does not claim ownership of any content that you post on or through the service. Instead, you hereby grant to Instagram a non-exclusive, fully paid, and royalty-free, transferable, sub-licensable, worldwide license to use the content that you post on or through the service, subject to the service's privacy policy available here, including but not limited to sections three, sharing of your information, four, how we store information, and five, your choices about your, in your, choice about your information. Um, I guess that is pretty... It just flows right off the tongue, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, it is actually much easier to understand than a lot of them. Um, this was, I guess, what all the hoopla was about when people were worried that they were going to sell your photos to advertisers. Yeah, well, the Instagram apocalypse was a, a very interesting episode, right, where we first saw a number of, you know, celebrities or pseudo-celebrities say that they were going to take their accounts down over these changes and people in an uproar. That was a, a great example, I thought, of people reading the headlines and not actually reading the changes. Uh, because when Instagram made that change, I think their, their, their um, one mistake was they put in the word sell. Uh, and that was something that people understood and had a very negative connotation towards. But if you looked at the previous version of the terms, it was pretty clear that they already had that ability, which was to make money off of your uh, photos. Um, within the network, right? It's not like that they could make a book out of them and then sell them. That would be outside of the network. But they already had the power to somehow make money, right, through advertising or whatever revenue streams they were going to come up with because they were still a very new platform. 
they already had that ability. Now they were revising those terms and making it a little bit easier for people to understand, and people went nuclear over it, right? I mean, Kim Kardashian was going to delete her account, and we all know we cannot have Kim Kardashian deleting her Instagram account. I mean, that would just be horrible. So uh, they, they went back, right? They went back to language that still gave them the same abilities. So it's, a, it's one of these notions that people were reading those headlines that, oh, they're going to own it, and oh, they're going to sell it and make money off of it. Well, look, they're going to make money off of you. That's what they're trying to do, and that's why they, you get to use the service for free. But they're not going to own your content. Uh, that is one of the common misper, uh, misconceptions out there about social media. You see those emails every once in a while that Facebook now wants to own your photos, or there's a new change in this platform that they're going to own it. Those platforms don't want to own your content because with ownership comes risk. It comes liability. What they do want is for you to own your content because then you have the ultimate responsibility but then they have the broadest rights possible. They've got this huge license. You just read the one from Instagram that basically allows them to do whatever they want, except that they're not going to be on the hook for actually owning the content in case you did something bad to create it in the first place. But, but so, you're dealing with uh, you know, ownership of a copyright that has no monetary value. What's the point? Well, and that's the question of, of what has monetary value. Um, I, I don't know if we can say at the moment that you're writing it or the moment that's on your page whether it does have value because who knows, down the road, you could become a very famous person that people would actually pay to see your old information or your old tweets or your old photos. Um, it's hard to say, right? But I do think that that's an interesting notion that we all still continue to own our content. Um, these platforms have uh, – they're basically the custodians of them. Right? They, they, we have trusted them with uh, you know, maintaining this content that we own, and they have a broad license uh, as a result of that. Uh, I think what's also interesting is, uh, well, what happens when we pass away? Right? When uh, intellectual property flows to your estate, and if you still own everything that's on a platform, then technically that becomes part of your estate. Uh, but several platforms uh, have different policies and different things that they will do with an account that belongs to someone who has died. And some of it may include deleting some of that information. And I think that's an interesting gray area. Do they have the right to do that? They don't own it. They just have a license to it. Uh, we actually have about five states that have passed laws that allow the, uh, the estate to gain access to those social media accounts. But we have a number of states that don't have that uh, on the books. And it may be difficult to gain access, especially some platforms would require you to get a court order to uh, access it. So I'm um, working on a uh, course now on social media and security for mobile and ran into a report called Cyber Chasing, Cyber Casing the Joint on the Privacy Implications of Geotagging by Gerald Friedland and Robin Summer. And they did a number of different uh, exercises with photos that had been shared on social. One of the exercises they did was downloaded a bunch of photos from Craigslist and um, were able to pinpoint, you know, on a map where they were taken. In some cases, the photos were of, you know, precious stones or precious metals or other jewelry pieces that are being resold. You know, there would be a note saying, you know, call after five when I'm home from work. And, of course, there's a picture of a, you know, you know, gilded necklace of some kind. Um, so, so that was one piece of information that they were a able to get. Uh, through the metadata in the background of the photos. The other thing they were able to do on Instagram is, you know, a lot of celebrities um, who use Instagram, particularly in Los Angeles, uh, don't use their real name and think that by not using their real name that their photos are safe. Uh, what they did was they uh, reverse engineered, based on uh, geosearch, uh, the home addresses 
of different celebrities and were able to find their Instagram accounts through the geodata. Um, you think about something like that, you know, social media and security, geodata, uh, metadata, it's, it's sort of background stuff. Is, do you think when you're putting together an enterprise-wide social media training program, is it important to teach stuff like that? Uh, absolutely. Uh, I think that teaching people about the privacy implications, the, uh, the concerns that you may have about information getting out, I think that that's a very important uh, lesson to teach people. I think that there's plenty of colorful examples. I mean, you just brought up some that I hadn't even heard of, but there's you know, countless others of people posting information that maybe they later regret or that they shouldn't have posted in the first place. Uh, and it's important to show that to people. Uh, I think it's even important to show them that while privacy settings exist within platforms, they can fail. And so it's a question of you know, how much confidence do you have in that platform and that developer? I mean, we even saw uh, that one time when Mark Zuckerberg's photos were accidentally tagged or accidentally made public for a matter of minutes, but that was all it took for people to copy them and then put them on other websites. So it can absolutely happen to anyone. So the question then is, well, what should you be concerned about, right? If you're posting something and really having confidence in those privacy settings to keep you safe, well, maybe you shouldn't be posting in the first place. Um, it's a, you know, it absolutely, it's an issue that, that needs to be taught. You know, where people should draw the line, though, is something that they have to decide for themselves. Well, let's talk about that for a minute. Um, media scholar Marshall McClellan, before social media ever saw the light of day, wrote, publication is a self-invasion of privacy. Um, and, of course, you know, what makes social media fun is sharing personal moments. Uh, but I'll tell you, a number of instances where I'll run into someone I haven't seen for a while and tell them something mundane about my life that I've been working out or playing tennis or whatever it is, and they'll look at me and they'll say, I know, and I'll feel a little shocked. Well, of course they know I'm checking in at the gym, I'm checking in at the tennis court, but I don't necessarily remember that when I'm having this you know, brief social interlude with someone I haven't seen for a while. And so it makes you think, you know, yeah, you do need to set some limits. What should those limits be? Can you give us any broad strokes? Yeah, that's... I think that that is the ultimate question that can only be answered at an individual level. Uh, I think it certainly depends on what, you know, what activities you're trying to share with people, what, uh, you know, what kind of relations you're having with people um, online. I mean, we, we all know that there are people that will have you know, 5,000 friends on Facebook, uh, even though they've never met a fraction of them. And we also know people that use Facebook to connect with maybe 10 people. Right, and that there's some platforms that restrict themselves half to the, the 150 number. Uh, so I think it's a it's a huge spectrum that's out there for everyone. They just they need to be aware of the risks. And I think that I think as as people uh, you know getting more experience with these platforms, they are seeing that. They're certainly seeing all the stories of people sharing too much information. Uh, you also have a healthy amount of skepticism coming from people into social media, where they're saying, "Why would I ever want to do that?" Right, I think the, the biggest, I think you see that with all waves of technology, right? People, as to whether they adopt email or whether they adopt text messaging, to me, the, the latest, I think, generational gap is that, that geotagging, that checking into locations. Uh, you see a broader acceptance of that with younger social media users than you do with uh, older users, right? That, that some people would say, why would I ever want to tell someone where I am, right? That's no business of theirs unless I choose to tell them, but um, a lot of you know younger users will immediately say, "Yeah, I'm checking in here. I'm here. I'm, you know, I'm at this bar. I'm at that bar." 
Um, it's, it's certainly something that people have to decide for themselves, but at least be aware of the risks in sharing that information. Um, it does kind of lend itself to that topic of, okay, well, then what do we do with that information that's out there? And what ability should people have to pull that information down afterwards, right, which right now is uh, very limited. Uh, although Europe, um, the European Union has uh, advocated for, France specifically, uh, they have advocated for a right to be forgotten online, right, the idea that there would be this button that would erase your digital presence from online should you uh, choose to do so, which is something that in the U.S., which has a very – a corporate-friendly view of privacy. Uh, it's something that we've scoffed at for years. Uh, and then last year, the uh, FTC put out a report about the state of consumer privacy. And in that was the first time that they didn't necessarily endorse this right to be forgotten, but they did mention, I think it was something like eight times, they talked about this hypothetical eraser button that they would perhaps like social media platforms to implement that would allow people to, on individual pieces of content, always be able to go in and erase them uh, so that there'd be no presence at all. Uh, there, the concern was over uh, children or people like 13 to 18 who were posting things on social media that later they would like to pull down, and they would like the platforms to be able to enable that kind of um, activity. But, you know, it's, it's a really tricky question to answer because there's so many different people using social media for different things already at different levels, and there's no one way to say this is the right level of your participation. How lucky are we? I don't know how old you are. I'm assuming you're around my age, but how lucky you know, are people like us who got through our teen years without Facebook? <laughs> you know, we, we hear that. I hear that from a lot of people, right? I hear that, um, that people, you know, if I had Facebook there, I'd be in so much trouble. Oh, it'd be um, over for me. Yeah. yeah well, I, I never would have gotten out of the gate. <laughs> well, but I see the flip side to that as well which is that now the younger generation is growing up where everyone is doing this and there's so much content that who knows if they're going to see your video or if they're going to care because everyone's got their own. It's an excellent point. It's an excellent point. We're talking to Ryan Garcia. He's a social media attorney at Dell. And when we get back, the top five things not to share. Stay with us. So we're at a point where 91% of adults use social media. 85% of employers think there's a benefit to using social media at work. Half of all companies globally have had to discipline an employee for the misuse of social media at work, and still less than a third provide any sort of training at all. If you're ready to train the enterprise, um, Comply Socially has 80 hours of online social media training courseware uh, that's available for license. It is uh, the most cost-effective way to train a large employee population, and you can do it anytime, anywhere, on any device. If you're interested in becoming a reseller, hop on over to complysocially.com, visit the reseller link on the bottom of the page, and fill out the form. We'd love to talk to you. Or if you're at a company where you're in charge of social media and you'd like to get the rest of the folks retweeting, liking, and commenting on your stuff, we have a solution for you to scale engagement in the workplace and manage risk at complysocially.com. Check us out. So, Ryan, I have my, my top five list of things I think you shouldn't share. I, I'd like to share them with you. Let me know if you think, first of all, there's a legal basis for for, for, for these recommendations being, being 
out of line or if there's anything I've missed. Okay, so number one, pictures of yourself or anyone else under the influence of drugs or alcohol. <laughs> number two, anything about your health condition because it could be used in the future by your health insurance provider to deny coverage. Um, three, anything about parties that you're planning or having because you can't always invite everyone and someone's feelings are going to get hurt. Um, purchases of precious stones, precious metals, or anything else that might tempt a burglar. And, oh, and, and finally, number five, how thrilled you are that your kid is finally old enough to stay home alone. Um, yeah, no, I think those are all good ones. And, and I think that, uh, you know, you've got interesting discussions where on any of those, if the volume ever got high, what would the government do in order to require platforms to take them down? Um, so that's, but, but yeah, all of those are, those are all good ones. Um, I think even that first one could be broadened to just uh, photos of committing any out illegal activity uh, at all, right? Let alone being um, inebriated or under the influence. Well, it's not necessarily, it's not illegal to be drunk on alcohol. Well, no, that's true. That's true. Uh, certainly with like the drugs, it depends on the drugs. Um, but, you know, even in most states where, yeah, I mean, well, you can drink in all states, uh, assuming that you're of the age, but you're, but in most of those states, it's also not legal to be drunk in public, right? So, it's, it, you know, there's an interesting line as well, depending on where they're doing it. Um, but, uh, but yeah, uh, that, that, that's a good point. Uh, but I, I see that broader concern of people, you know, posting themselves doing illegal things. I mean, we just had that case, what was it, like two days ago, with the guy who, um, actually posted the photo of, uh, of his wife that he had just shot um, on Facebook. Um, and then he turned himself into the police right after that. I'm not even going to touch that one. <laughs> that, let's, well, that let's talk for a minute about the NSA concerns regarding the storage of phone numbers. Um, do you think at some point that these concerns result in some sort of government regulation that cracks down on you know, business and private sector use of social media to store information. I mean, for, for so many years, right, we talked about social media measurement, but isn't it really just a, a nicer way of saying surveillance? <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, it's a good question. It's, it's, it's absolutely a conversation that we need to have. Um, I'm surprised that it's taken this long for us to have it. I'm, I'm also surprised that for all the press that we are getting on the NSA and PRISM and everything, it still doesn't seem to rise to the level of outrage that would uh, bring us to the point of having that conversation. But I think that we do. It's funny, you know, um, it seems like, you know, convenience and, uh, and free seems to outweigh privacy concerns. <laughs> that's, uh, yes, but, but also that's largely because of our own view of privacy, right? That we... For the U.S., the same agency that governs privacy policies is also the one that oversees uh, warranties on your mattress, right? We view privacy as just a commodity, and it's very different when you look at the EU, which has as a you know, fundamental human right that you have the right to privacy in your home and in your correspondence. And so that flows down from, you know, not only the laws that they make, but I also think a lot of the experiences that they've had in the past few decades. Right, specifically when you talk about just World War II, all the countries coming out of there and, and what different countries were doing with all of your personal information. Uh, we don't have that kind of founding incident uh, that, that kind of pushed us in this other direction. So we have this very corporate-friendly view of privacy, but we are where all the platforms are originating. Right? Facebook, Twitter, all of these are coming from the U.S. and the U.S. view, and now they're bumping up against this European view 
and who knows if the you know what the right level of protection is. But right now, we have very very little. So, from an international aspect, how does that impact Dell's social media and community training program? Do you find that when you take social media education into other markets, you have to change the material to work for that culture? Uh, some, yes. It, it really, we try to keep our content, uh, well, you know about the different levels because you have that whole detailed conversation with Liz. Uh, but at the, at the highest level, I think that those classes just need to be translated into a local language, if at all. Uh, really, they are applicable across all the different countries. But when you get into some of the more specific platforms, do covering classes, then sometimes you do need to tailor it for other countries. More so I see it with the individual programs or work that we're doing outside of training classes. And we really just, it's not something that you can generalize into a training class, so you just need to do a more one-on-one analysis of what you're doing uh, and whether or not that's allowed in the country that you're doing it. Now, from a uh, privacy standpoint, um, I know in the U.S., employees would enjoy a higher degree of privacy on a cell phone that they own in the workplace than they would on a cell phone provided by their employer. And this you know, brings us into this whole question of BYOD, bring your own device, and what it means for organizations from both a compliance and a training standpoint. Does, does Dell social media, um, social media training program address bring, bring your own device? And if so, sort of from a legal standpoint, what can and can't you recommend an employee do with their own mobile phone? Yeah, we, we don't cover BYOD uh, because we tend to keep it focused more on our social media principles and the platforms that we use. Uh, but what we do talk about is that notion of being responsible for what you post. And we talk about that from the context of both your activities within officially branded accounts as well as your conduct just as an employee of Dell and what you may do uh, on social media, you know, even on your own personal level, right? At some point, that can cross over into the professional level depending on what you're doing. So we're really talking more about the conduct and the platforms as opposed to the specific devices. Uh, but you're absolutely right. There are some very real legal concerns over what people are doing on their own devices, uh, what they're doing on corporate-provided devices, and then that hybrid of it's your own device, but you're also running software that your employer has provided with its own terms. And it's, a, uh, it's a fascinating and new area. Now, in terms of you know, providing advice on conduct um, and usage, you know, the biggest concern seems to be bumping up against the National Labor Relations Act which obviously gives workers in the U.S. the right to protest uh, any practice they feel lead to an unsafe workplace or an unfair workplace. Um, and, and so it seems like everyone is always searching for the catch-all phrase that they can put into that uh, recommendation that will say, hey, do this, but you know, not if it's going to interfere with your federal concerted right to protest management practices. And I I heard a really good catch-all phrase. I'll run it by you. Tell me if you like it or if you've got a better one. The one I heard was, you know, as long as the advice is given to the employee um, to apply when the employee is acting as the employer, as the official voice of the employer on social media, it's okay to mandate certain uh, 
certain certain practices, certain manners. Uh, but if the if they're not using social media as the official voice of the employer, you can't do that. Uh, that's an interesting one. I'm not sure how well that would fly because then at least, you know, as much as I can try to think how the NLRB might think, I, and, I, and I don't claim that I can do that at all, uh, I could see them potentially being concerned with how you define when you are speaking on behalf of the company or through the company's voice. And that if they become concerned that that's any communication while on the job or from a job facility or about the job, that that becomes too broad and then it's restricting what you can say. Uh, what I would say, though, is that notion of having a phrase that allows you to have a social media policy up to the point where it infringes on the rights that you are given under the NLRA, the NLRB has actually said that those are not acceptable. Those are called savings clauses, right, where it's something that's just along the lines of, look, to the extent that anything in this policy infringes on your rights, then it's not saying that. You have absolutely have your rights. And the NLRB has said in, I think it was the third memo that their GC issued on social media policies, that that's not acceptable. Uh, so it, I, I can just say that that's a very, uh, it's a tricky area right now. Uh, the NLRB has given guidance that uh, makes it very difficult to write a social media policy that seems to cover a lot of the concerns that corporations have. Uh, I mean, some of the language that they have said is not acceptable, such as uh, protect confidential information seems to be something that should be allowed, but their interpretation is that some companies define confidential information to be things like work schedules, which is what employers can or employees can talk about. So it's a very tricky issue right now. Um, and uh, I think it's something that's going to be evolving over time. And for right now, just every employer has to kind of take a look at what those memos are, what their policies are, and, and hope that they're in compliance. So the Computer Decency Act has been gutted. The only thing that remains is Clause 230. And uh, as important as it may be, uh, you know, here was all this guidance from a government regulator that no longer seemed to be worthwhile or constitutional. So I'm going to ask you now as a speculator to take out your crystal ball and tell us, you know, 10 years from now, 15 years from now, 20 years from now, of all the guidance that you're seeing handed down by the FTC, by the, by the NLRB, by, um, you know, the SEC, uh, how much of this is going to withstand the test of time? Wow. 15 years ahead or 20 years ahead of social media. Um, I don't even know what that looks like. But, uh, um, you know, I think that as much as social media has impacted us, we still have some changing to do as well. So I'm wondering if it's really the guidance that's going to change or if it's society that will change to social media and then the two will kind of play off each other as a result. Um, like I said, when we were talking about the, the privacy concerns, I, I think that uh, we are overdue for a conversation about what are the right limits for privacy and privacy controls in this country. Um, I'm not sure if that means going to the European model or something in between, but I know that right now we haven't addressed it at all on a comprehensive level. Right? We talk about a few topics, uh, specific areas where we do protect privacy, like children or medical information or financial but nothing that's very broad. And I think that we need to have that conversation and social media is going to force us to have that conversation because now so much information can be published widely uh, and, and very, very quickly and easily. 
right? Some of the examples that you gave about some of those photos off of Craigslist. Um, so I think that that is a conversation that we need to have. And I don't know what's the right agent to make us do that. I don't know if it's this NSA program. I don't know if it's something else. But to me, that's going to be one of the big uh, changes that we will see within the next 15 years is, you know, what information we're going to protect. Uh, beyond that, uh, man, it's, that's just the, the slow crawl of you know, regulations in terms of what are the things that are popping up that we see people having problems with, so we're trying to address it in one way or another. Whether that means the technology changes or the laws that regulate those technology changes, it's really hard to tell. Um, I don't think that I could have predicted any of the main concerns that we have now five years ago. So, uh, you know, lawyers hate dealing with hypotheticals. Uh, so that's, you know, one of the things I think it's, it's tricky to try to predict. But I think that privacy is that big one. Um, and uh, beyond that, no clue. Sorry. Final question, Ryan. Um, Dell has, in many ways, sort of, uh, you know, b- built a, a model for others to follow in terms of um, spurring enterprise-wide adoption and engagement and scaling social media that way. Um, and it makes a lot of sense, and uh, certainly, you know, you guys have, have sort of walked the walk, and so you get cited in so many case studies and, and examples of how to do it. At the same time, you know, just recently, there's been a defection of really, you know, the biggest names at Dell in the training department. Uh, pretty much everyone in the social media, you know, division that had had been known and respected left. What happened? Uh, is it is it? Should we look at this as some sign that for some reason it didn't work? <laughs> no. Well, uh, that's a that's a, a great question. Wow, hits right to the heart. Um, yes, I mean we have we have certainly lost some uh, huge names in our social media space, right? You just had the interview with Liz. Um, today's her birthday, by the way, so maybe everyone should tweet her a happy birthday. Uh, but uh, it, I don't think that is an indication at all of us having lost confidence in it. In fact, I think it's actually the exact opposite, which is that even Liz helped build um, the SmackU program, SmackU University, um, from the ground up. But even in her time at Dell, she had transitioned to moving on to even other things within social media, and other people were taking over um, for the training program. And that training program has continued to evolve. We've continued to see people uh, embrace it and want to learn about it. And I think that that shows that there's actually the, the success of the program, that the program succeeds beyond the initial person that created it, um, shows that it's a worthwhile endeavor that has succeeded. So we have a great you know, team of people that are leading it from the ones that coordinate the programs to teach the programs to now transition some of those programs from in-person to online or you know, more telepresence uh, modules that scale a little bit better. Um, to me, that is a, a huge success of the program. Um, and the fact that you know, it's, it's really worked. It has empowered our employees to know what they're able to do and to be able to do the things that help make their jobs better or help make them use social media in the right ways. Um, I can also say from my own legal perspective, lawyers, uh, from whatever industry they're in, we are almost always forced into the position of being reactive, of putting out fires when they come out, when they come up. And the one thing we always want to do is be more proactive, and it's really hard to do that. 
And this is one of the great ways that we can is through training programs. And so that's one of the reasons why I talk to other lawyers, social media or otherwise, about our training program, because it is a fantastic example of how all of these thousands of people around the world taking these social media classes are learning not only the social media principles and how our brand is using them, but they're also using, they're also learning about the regulations that we need to follow and the legal risks that we face in, in this field so that they're avoiding those activities altogether. Or when something questionable comes up, if they reach out to me with a specific question, eight to nine times out of 10, they already know the answer. And they're either seeking confirmation or it really is a brand new area that they're, you know, that they're looking to get an answer on. And to me, that is fantastic. That's something in the other areas I wish you know, we could do. Um, but it's just, it's fantastic to have that kind of perspective on it, to be that proactive in reducing risk in an area where if you take one wrong step, millions of people will see it before you even realize it. If you're listening to this episode on iTunes, give us a review. Give us a star rating. Uh, if you're listening on social media today, thank you. Uh, but if you'd like to get the show sooner, uh, subscribe to our feed on iTunes or through the show blog on the recordpodcast.com. Uh, we often don't get the show out on social media today quite as quickly. Also on the show blog, you'll find reference links to any of the podcasts that were mentioned, as well as the studies, uh, including the one on um, cyber casing, uh, which will be um, linked to in the show notes. Um, Ryan Garcia, social media attorney at Dell, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks. And if you'd like to download our new white paper on the seven deadly social media sins, you can get that at ontherecordpodcast.com. Thank you for joining us. You've been listening to On the Record Online with Eric Schwartzman, the podcast about how technology is changing the world of communications. To subscribe to the podcast or share feedback, visit us online at ontherecordpodcast.com, on Twitter at ontherecord, or send email to ontherecordpodcast at gmail.com. On the Record Online is hosted by Eric Schwartzman, an independent online communications consultant whose clients include the U.S. Department of State, the United States Marine Corps, the U.S. Embassy of Greece, the Government of Singapore, Johnson & Johnson, Toyota, Southern California Edison, the Environmental Defense Fund, and dozens of small to medium-sized organizations. For information about engaging Eric Schwartzman as a speaker, social media trainer, or digital strategist, visit www.ericschwartzman.com or send email to eric at ericschwartzman.com.